0: So great to have you here while I'm speaking. He rests. That's what he's saying, right? I'm just kidding. (laughs) 40 minute nap. Here we come. Habakkuk chapter two is all about waiting. And when I think about waiting, I can't help but think about uh, sidelines. When you play football and you watch a football game, You see the 11 players on the field versus each other, 11 on 11. But there are also guys that are on the sidelines. One of the things that is always interesting to me is to to see the action on the sideline because what are those guys on the sideline doing? They're waiting to go into the game. There are all kinds of things that you see on the sideline if you take the time to watch. And what you sometimes see is you sometimes see guys just loading up on water. They're just drinking water. So if they get their number called, they're really not going to be ready to go in because they're going to be so waterlogged. There are other guys that are kind of goofing around and laughing with each other, and you can see that, and they, they just really are, are waiting, but they're not going to be ready to go in when the time comes. I love to watch punters and place kickers because they seem to be the ones that are most active. I remember I went to see a, a game, and on the sideline, the, the punter had a ball the entire time he was on the sideline. He would spin it. He would toss it in the air. He would hand it to someone else to have them throw it to him. He would bounce it off his foot. He would kick it into a net. He was ready. He was uh, uh, approaching the time when his number would be called that he would go in a game. He would be ready. His waiting was an active waiting. Sometimes our waiting, when we are waiting for an answer from God, our, our waiting becomes passive. We just kind of sit back and say, okay, God, do your thing. But when you get to Habakkuk chapter 2, you find out that that's not how God does it. When we are waiting, we are to wait actively. And when we, we wait actively, there are things that we know about As we wait, that will happen and take place. So what I would like for us to do is look at Habakkuk chapter 2. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, we would see three things that we know as we wait for God's answer. Three things that we know as we wait for God's answer. Now remember, Habakkuk's name means to embrace or to wrestle. It's a marvelous thing to, to, to see how his name fits this chapter beautifully. Because when we think about wrestling with something, that's what he's doing in Habakkuk chapter 2. He's wrestling with this, what am I doing while I'm waiting kind of an idea. And God says, this is what you're going to do. He's active in it. And then when we get to Habakkuk chapter 3, his name comes in handy again because in Habakkuk chapter 3, he will embrace what it is that God is going to do in his life. So let's look at what we know as we wait actively for God to answer The first thing that we know is that God has a plan. God has a plan. Look at verse 1. It says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay the plan of God. As we wait, we know God has a plan. Notice what he does here. He says, I will stand at my watch. I am on the ramparts where I station myself. I am looking to see what he has to say. He's using these active personal pronouns, these active verbs that say, you know, I'm going to do this while I'm waiting for God. He says that I am willing to stand and, and watch. You see, sometimes we pray in a panic, don't we? And when the panic's over, we think, well, God's answered the prayer. That's not the case. Sometimes we need to, to watch further because once the panic dies down, then God will bring an answer later on. And he says that I station myself on the rampart. He, he's putting himself in a very important position. The, the, the person on the rampart was the person who would look to see who is coming, uh, what enemy is coming. He was on the wall and he would look to see what enemy is coming. So it was a very important position. And so Habakkuk says, I'm in a very important place waiting for God to give me my plan because I know that he has one. And he says in verse one, he says also this, he says, I will look to see what he has to say. Uh, you have already heard and have been taught that Habakkuk uh, ministered during the same time as Jeremiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, King Josiah, Jehoiakim. Those were the ones uh, who were around him at this time. But notice what he says. He says, I will look to see what he, that's God, has to say. I would circle that and remind us of that. Because too many times what happens? We have a complaint or a question to God, and what do we do? Well, we don't wait to see what God has to say. We run to our friend. What do you think? run to a, 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 another person and say, what do you think about this? And pretty soon what happens is the problem that we have taken to God, the complaint that we've taken to God, pretty soon it takes a, a life of itself. And we find ourselves the center of attention because everyone's talking about your problem. Everyone's talking about your complaint. But you see, Habakkuk says, no, I don't want to know what anyone else has to say. I want to know what God has to say. God's plan. What is his plan? Too many times when, when life doesn't go our way, We delight in the problem instead of the answer that God's going to bring. I hope you've picked up on this. God does not say to Habakkuk, who do you think you are asking me or complaining to me? Did you pick up on that? You see, this happens all the time in the Old Testament and New Testament, right? Moses, Noah, Abraham, Jeremiah, Job. They have questions for God, don't they? And God welcomes those questions. But please remember, when we question God, he has no obligation to answer us. He, he, can, he can refuse. He can say, who are you? But instead, in grace, mercy, and love, what does he do? He listens to us, and he provides an answer to us. And sometimes, because he is God, he is allowed to say no to what it is that we complain or question. So when we, go, when we see what's happening here, it's, a plan of, it's, it's Habakkuk looking at the plan of God and saying, this is what I want. You say, well, how do I know what God is saying? Well, there are a couple of ways to know. Once is through his word. Think about how often you read the word of God to get answers for life. You say, well, I don't always have questions, so those are the days I skip. Well, what you should do is every day, reading a portion of what it is that God has to say, so that when you have the questions, you have that resource to reach back in and to pull for them. Remember in 2 Kings chapter 20, 22, Josiah was the eight-year-old king. A couple of years later, he sends the guys into the temple and they begin to clean the temple. And what do they find? They find the word of God. And when they open it and begin to read it, what breaks out? Revival, change. You see, too many times we forget that the word of God is tied to the answers that we have. So God speaks to us through his word. He also speaks to us through opportunity. Remember in Matthew, he said this. He says, ask, seek, and knock. And what's going to happen? The door is going to be open to you, the door of opportunity. What am I supposed to do in life, Lord? Ask, seek, knock. Opportunity. Uh, Remember Paul, he oftentimes described what he was doing like this. He says, a great and effective door is open unto me. Opportunity. God opens up opportunities to provide answers to us in life. Sometimes we are mistaken and we, we get something. We think, oh, this must be what God wants. And instead of thinking it through, because it's the first thing that comes along, we say, well, that must be it. Sometimes it's not. And he reiterates that in chapter 1, in chapter 2, where he says, wait for it. Linger. It's coming. Sometimes we're so, so rash in making choices. But God says, you know what? Wait. It's coming. What I have for you through an opportunity. Also through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit impresses things upon our hearts and helps us to have direction. The only thing about that is you've got to make sure that the Holy Spirit is leading you to do something that is not contrary to the Word of God. You know, sometimes we say, I've got this feeling that God wants me to do this, and if we look at the Word of God, we know for sure that that's not what it is. I had a friend that one time said to me, he says, I believe God is calling me to Africa. I said, wow, that's that's quite a, quite a place to go. He goes, yeah, I would go for a year. I said, well, what does your wife think about that? He goes, she's not going to go. And I said, you really think that God would want you in Africa for a year without your wife? I mean, think about that. It was, yeah, God is speaking to me. God's speaking to you contrary to a scripture then. So when we listen to what God has to say, we must do it through an understanding of what he has. Verse 2, it says this, write down the revelation, make it plain, put it on tablets, allow the heralds to run with it. He wants to make it public and save it for others. Uh, This idea of a herald, It really isn't strange. It's the Pony Express of the ancient Near East, isn't it? They would have these people run from place to place and tell stories. The most famous that you probably know is Pheidippides. Uh, Pheidippides was the guy that saw the Athenians defeat the Persians at the Battle of Marathon. And then he ran from Marathon to Athens and he shouted, joy, we win and died after he ran those 26 miles. Uh, The same idea here. He's saying, listen, I am so confident, God is, I am so confident in my plan and what I have for you, but I want you to write this down, I want you to put it on a tablet, and then I want you to give it to someone and spread it around. You see, too many times what happens is we complain, we question, and then when God delivers his plan, we forget to share that with everyone else. We forgot to say, you know what, this is something that you need to hear about. Because as a result of knowing that God is working in my life, you can get excited because he's going to work in your life. Write it down, put it in public. Verse 3, For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. The revelation will come. For Habakkuk, it will come in chapter 3. For us, I don't know when it comes. It comes at different times for different people, in different ways. But the plan of God will be revealed to you. We know that while waiting for, For God, he has a plan. If we don't wait for God, sometimes we rush, don't we? Think about Abraham and Sarah. They rushed. The angel of the Lord came to Abraham and Sarah and said, you're going to have a son. Sarah laughed and said, Abraham, you better go in to Hagar. That's rushing ahead of God, not waiting. Scripture says, wait for it. Wait for it. Rushing ahead is like Peter. Remember in the garden, all of the soldiers come being led by Judas who has betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And what did Peter do? He whips out a knife and cuts off the ear of Malchus. He rushed ahead of the plan of God because what was the plan? The plan was for Jesus to be arrested, for him to go to the cross, to die for you and for me. That was the plan. Peter rushed ahead and wanted the kingdom to come instead of the cross. Don't rush ahead of the plan of God We know, waiting, that God has a plan. Please notice the second thing that we know is found in verse 4. Verse four. In verse 4, he starts out by saying, See, he is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. What we want to focus on is that last part. Because in verse 4, what we have is the key to this whole chapter. We have the crux upon which everything else will, will balance itself. He literally says this. He literally says, the justified man by his faith shall live. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, is a very important part of Christian doctrine. It's kind of a foundation stone upon which we can build other things. Martin Luther is the one that really made this a touch point in the Reformation. Remember, Martin Luther started out as an Augustinian monk. He went into the monastery to find a way to work his way into the pleasure of God. He saw God as this, this judgmental tormentor of people. And he wanted to find ways to do good things for him. So he thought, I'll be a monk. And you talk about a monk who was good. Martin Luther was good at it. He beat himself constantly. He wore a rope with big knots on it around his waist, and he would pull those ropes as tight as he could to inflict pain on him so he would suffer as much as Christ suffered on the cross. So God would say, okay, enough, you're right before me. That was Martin Luther. And you see, that's some of us. There are some of you that are here today thinking, you know what, I can do this on my own. I can do something that will please God and that will make him say, enough, I want you. But then we come to this verse, and it says, The justified shall live by faith. The justified shall live by faith. The emphasis is obviously on God's grace. It's obviously on faith, believing what God will do. But let's break it down into three parts. The first part is this, the justified person, the justified man. That's the first part. You say, what does it mean to be justified? To be justified is to be declared righteous. To be declared righteous. To to be made right. It's a legal term. We are guilty of sin, and through Jesus Christ we are declared right. We are made righteous. And so he says the justified man, the man who is declared righteous. And so what happens is this man has completely abandoned his own works and has grabbed hold of God's works. The book of Romans is all about this. If your interest is peaked at all, the book of Romans is all about the justified man. Here's a glimpse: R- Romans chapter one verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation. For in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the justified man by his faith shall live. You see, God is the one who makes you right. Notice the second part of this: by his faith. The justified man by his faith, not faithfulness or right dealings, but trust, believing. This is all dealt with in the book book of Hebrews. Remember in the book of Hebrews, it's all about something that's better. What's better? Well, we have this thing that's better than the sacrifices, that's better than the old priesthood, that's better than the tabernacle. The thing that's better is Jesus Christ and what he has done. That's better. Well, how do I get this? By faith, by believing. By believing. Now, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, is all about action. It is a book, chapter of faith. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Abel, and he did this. The word of the Lord came to Abraham, and he did this. You see, th- their faith leads to action. And so by faith, we do these things. Notice the last part, shall live. That's the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, it says this, Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, the just by his faith shall live. Here we are in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 in the Old Testament. We have these three words, literally three words in the text. And in these three words, there are three New Testament books explaining those three words. Are they pretty important? They're very important. The book of Romans, the book of Hebrews, the book of Galatians teaches us that those ones that are justified shall live by faith. I love 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. It says this, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. There was a man, he was a, a shoe manufacturer. His name was John Yates. He wrote a poem and handed it to a guy who was a Civil War veteran named Ira Sankey. And Ira Sankey was the song leader for D.L. Moody. And, and here was the song that, that he wrote. It says this on every hand, the foe we find drawn up in dread array. Let tents of ease be left behind and onward to the fray salvation's helmet on our head with truth all girt about the earth shall tremble neath our tread and echo with our shout. You say, well, that sounds like marching. It sounds like an army. Yeah, but notice what he says in the refrain. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. O glorious victory that overcomes the world. The justified man by his faith shall live. You see, faith is the power. That's what Habakkuk is saying. As we are waiting for God, as we are waiting on God, we know that the power is our faith. You see, faith is not just a matter of saying, I trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, and that's the end of it. Instead, it's the just shall live by faith. It's my life becomes a life of faith. And as we go through this chapter, chapter two, you're going to say, boy, it does take faith to believe this. And that's what we need. We need faith, believing in what God can do. Verse 4, when we read it, the just shall live by faith, it begs the question, are you? Are you? Not have you. Not have you. It is a present active thing. It is something that is ongoing. Are you living by faith, trusting in what God can do, waiting for his plan, and then powering that plan with a faith, believing that God can do something? You see, that's what Habakkuk is doing. The just shall live by faith. We mentioned Martin Luther earlier. Martin Luther went to Rome as an Augustinian monk. He thought that if he went to Rome into this place called uh, St. John's Lateran Basilica, he thought that if he went to that place, he would finally get to the, the point where he would do enough where God would say, okay, I'm happy with you. Because what was there was these stairs that had been brought from Jerusalem, from Pilate's quarters, And these stairs were there, and they had these crystal coverings over drops of blood that Jesus had dropped as he walked up and down these stairs to to talk to Pilate, remember, at his trial. And so Martin Luther paid his money for the indulgence. He had the prayers in his hand, and he started up the stairs, and he fell to his knees, and he's working over these prayers, and he's begging God, please find something in me that you can save me by. And as he got to almost to the top of the stairs, this is where his son, Dr. Paul, luther takes over in the story and dr paul luther says this he says that's when my dad thought of habakkuk's words the just by faith shall live he dropped his indulgence he threw down his prayers he walked to the top of the steps and he says that's it that's it he went back to his monastery and spent his life dedicated to the principle the justified man by faith shall live. Not just for salvation, but for everything. The plan of God and the power of faith. While we are waiting, we know these things. Please notice the third thing that we know. Waiting actively, we know the path of the faithless. We know the path of the faithless. Starting in verse 4, he says, "'See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright." And then verse 5, indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is, a gre- he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes people captive, captive, all of the people. You see what's happening here is uh, Habakkuk hears from God about the faithless, the people of Babylon. The problem for Habakkuk was God is using these people these faithless ones these pagan people to judge Israel he can't get over that and so he's starting to think well you know there must be something good about these people cuz God is using them well God is saying no there's nothing good they're faithless and i want to explain to you and express to you how they're going to come to their own destruction this is very similar to psalm 73 in psalm 73 asaph who worked in the the temple he's a very good man he loved God and served him And he noticed around him that the people that were wicked and that didn't come into the temple, they were prospering. And he didn't understand that. He thought, why do they get to prosper? And finally, what did God do? It says in Psalm 73, it says, and then he went into the sanctuary of the Lord and he learned their end. He learned their end. He learned that the wicked, the faithless, they're destroyed in the end. And that's what's happening here in chapter 2. The path of the faithless those that aren't trusting in God, those that don't have the power of faith. This is their end. This is the path that they're on. And these paths, these woes that he's going to go through are particular to Babylon, but I think you'll see some spiritual application to us in our lives. There are five woes, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to remind us that the just, the godly, the righteous, the chosen ones will have life. The just by faith shall live. And then he shows us that those that are puffed up, those that are proud, those that are drunken, those that are dissatisfied, those that are extortioners, those that are, they're the ones that are going to be experiencing death. Now, please don't get mixed up here. When we go through these woes, we are not talking about human frailties. I fail, you fail, because we're incarcerated in the flesh. I live by faith as best I can, but I still make mistakes. I still sin. But when I sin, I feel bad about my sin, and I ask God to forgive me for that. So that's human frailty. What he's talking about here is human function, human form. These people, the Babylonians, they live this way. It's not a one-time thing. It's a pattern of life that they have established. And so the faithless, their path or their pattern of life is something that just isn't, isn't very suitable. Notice what he says, beginning in verse 7. I'm sorry, in verse 6 will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn saying woe to him who piles upon stolen good who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion how long must this go on will not your debtors suddenly arise will they not wake up and make you tremble then you will become their victim because you have plundered many nations the peoples who are left will plunder you For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. (coughs) Excuse me. So the first woe is all about selfless ambition. They're all about themselves. Piling up goods, greedy, puffed up, prideful. It's all about me. Serve me. Serve my end. Serve my purpose. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying woe to those people. There's some translation that says how horrible it is for these people. The grief, the sorrow that's going to come to them is unbelievable. They are living this way. The pattern of life is such that they will have these things. For the woes, for the woes, the scripture is very clear and very obvious. These are patterns of life that they must stop in doing. Their ambition is all about themselves. It's quite a contrast to the man who said the just shall live by faith. The guy that wrote the book of Romans, the guy that wrote Galatians, the apostle Paul, What was his ambition? He says in the book of Romans, he says, my ambition is to preach the gospel. That's my ambition. It's not about me. It's the same guy that told the Corinthians in the book of Corinthians. He says, my goal is to please God, not to please myself. You see, the faithless only have themselves that they want to please. You say, that doesn't sound right. I want to please myself too. No, you don't. You want to please God because what happens when you please God? God rewards you. God blesses you. God does things for you. You don't have to worry about yourself. You don't have to get wrapped up in yourself. You see, sometimes we have this all backwards, don't we? We think that, yes, we need to emphasize the self-importance of each individual. But do you remember that each individual is sin-stained? Each individual is guilty before God and needs a Savior? Do we remember that? And then when we realize that, we realize there's nothing that I can do for myself... God does it for me. The justified by faith shall live. The path of the, righteous, of the faithless, selfishness. The path of the faithful, faith, believing that God is going to do something. And we please him. Please notice the second woe. The second woe is found in verse 9. Verse 9, the second woe is covetousness. Verse 9 says this, Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Coveting, collecting, hoping to find security in what? Things, in things. The path of the faithless things. The path of the faithful. Well, it's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. Remember after he had fed the 5,000, after he had healed the blind man? What does he say? He says this, he says, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? It's not about things, it's about your soul. The just shall live by faith. Please notice the the third woe is about exploiters. Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? That the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Uh, Verse 12 through 14 is all about exploiters. It's about finding the weak person and taking advantage of them. Does that sound familiar? See, what they're doing here is they're using the weakness of others to build a reputation. A reputation is about what other people think about me. That's reputation. That's what the faithless do. They bully, right? They bully. They find the weak person. They bully them. But those that are faithful, living by faith, they're just the opposite of that. They find the weak person. What do they do? They love them. They minister to them. They reach out to them. So that in the end, when Jesus talks to us, he says this, Truly I tell you that whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. You see, those that are living by faith see the weak and the needy as Christ. Reach out and love. Please notice the fourth woe. The fourth woe is drunkenness. Drunkenness. It says in verse 15, Woe to him who drinks to his neighbors. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you, for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. The faithless seek security in relationships, and this is a relationship that's built on lust, that's built on exploitation. I get you drunk and I take advantage of you. I get you drunk and I destroy you. I get you drunk and I make my life look better. You see, sometimes we forget the damage that is done. The, the Babylonians, this is what was marked by them. They were known as drunken people. They drank in excess. excess. And the judgment of the Lord is coming. The cup I like the way they they use that. You know, the cup, instead of it's the cup of wine to drink and bring pleasure, it's the cup of judgment from the Lord's right hand that will bring you down. The path of the faithless. You see, if we're going to follow what God wants, we're just the opposite of that. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to take advantage of you and take everything I can from you, we say, I love you, and so I'm going to give to you. I love you, so I'm going to give to you. I love you because in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, be a follower of God, a follower of God who gave himself for me. You see, love is all about giving. And a person who is living by faith believes that if I give, God is going to give back. So I don't need to worry about it. I can give. I love. I give. And God will take care of me. The woes, the woes. Please notice the fifth woe is idolatry. Verse 18, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to, a, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give you guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. This is the end condition, right? The faithless, they've got to grab hold of something, and so they grab these idols, And in our 21st century minds, we go, I'm I'm off the hook. I don't have any idols in my house. But in reality, we do, don't we? We have the idol of social position. We have the idol of celebrity, worshiping celebrity and what they say. Uh, Worshiping positions and things, saying this is what I know and this is how I am. And being so puffed up in our own arrogance, that becomes our idol. If you write in your Bible next to this, these verses, 18 through 19, write Psalm 115. Psalm 115 is a great chapter about idolatry. It's almost, you, you almost start laughing because you, you begin to see how foolish it is to put your trust in things that man makes or that man does. It's like uh, we need the confidence of Elijah. Remember the story of Elijah? He was on the mountain, uh, showing, uh, had a showdown between the prophets of Baal and... And between him himself and the deal was we're going to build two altars and the first god that we call to and brings lightning and lights his altar that's the god we worship and so the prophets of baal they start screaming and hollering and begging their god baal to bring down fire and all these things and elisha is standing over there and he's saying maybe you need to yell louder maybe he's on vacation maybe your god's asleep it's that kind of confidence that the true and the living God is going to act. And then what does Elijah do? He says, okay, stand aside. Everybody, I want you to cover this thing with water, so much so that it fills this this ditch around my altar. I want you to cover it again with water. I want you to pour more water on it so that there are no tricks, nothing hidden. And then he says, God, you are the most high God, the holiest God, the greatest God, and I want you to show yourself to these people. And what does God do? He brings the bolt of lightning that not only laps up the altar and the sacrifice, but all the water around it. It's that kind of confidence. We aren't worshiping idols. We're worshiping the true and the living God. In the book of Thessalonians, the Thessalonian believers were marked by this. Remember the apostle Paul said to them, he says, I have heard how you have turned from idols to worship the living and true God. The just shall live by faith. If we're living by faith, we are worshiping that true and living God. You can see what happens here. There is quite a dramatic shift in the things that are going on. It is quite a a dramatic thing to see that God is, is working. And while Habakkuk is waiting for God's answer of Habakkuk chapter 3, we stop and see verse 20. Look what happens in verse 20. In Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple, that all the earth be silent before him. I've got my questions, and I want to wait for God's answer. And sometimes when I'm waiting, I start talking and just talk and talk and talk and, and try to explain everything to God so that He gets it. Or make sure that He understands my point of view. Make sure He understands that I'm not new at this. I've done this before. So if you could figure it out, God, to do it my way. And we begin to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And sometimes. It's amazing that God doesn't open the heavens and say, please, shut up. (laughs) You've come to me for an answer. You've come to me because you have a question. You've come to me because you are troubled. Be silent. Be quiet. Be overwhelmed by me. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. He's listening. He has a plan. The power of faith will ignite that plan. And the path of the righteous isn't the path that we want. We understand, uh, of the unrighteous, we understand that. And now we stop and we listen silent before God because he's so awesome. When we look at what we're doing here, we need to backpedal just a little bit. And as we reach the conclusion, we backpedal to to verse 4. The justified person by faith shall live. See, faith is not a virtue. Faith is a gift from God. And you say, well, you know, I'm struggling with my faith. That's all right. Remember the disciples? What did the disciples say? Lord, increase our faith. How did he do that? He increased their faith by talking to them about himself. How do you increase your faith? You increase your faith by reading the Word of God. Remember the book of Romans? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You want your faith to empower you. You want to live by faith, not just for salvation, but for every single day. The just shall live by faith. It is a faith when trusting in God will allow us to experience things that we've never known before. I went parasailing with three friends. Now, there's all kinds of ways to parasail. You know, you can parasail off the beach, off a boat, whatever. The way that we did it was we got in a boat, the three of us. They took us out to a little raft in the ocean. We climbed out onto this raft, and there were two guys standing there. And the two guys started to explain, you've got to put these harnesses on and all these things. Don't worry. They, we've never lost anyone. They're really strong. They're supportive. Don't worry. Just rest and enjoy the ride. And then we see circling. We see the parasail circling. And it comes floating in with another person. They grab that person. They unha- unlatch them. And they hook us in. They hooked my one friend in. And he was buying into it completely. The guy had sold him on the fact that you don't have to worry. You don't have, it's secure. It's safe. The driver, he's done this before. He knows what he's doing. Don't worry. And so he's hooting and hollering and screaming and just ready to go. And they're holding on to him. And the boat takes off. And you can see the rope getting tighter and tighter. And the guys are holding on, holding on, and all of a sudden they just let go, and he explodes up into the air. And he's on this parasail, and he's going around this, the ocean, and he's screaming, and he's, and he's saying, you can't believe what you can see. It's amazing, all of these things. And he's yelling this, you know, and we're, we're hundreds of yards away from him. And he's so thrilled by this experience of trusting in this parasail and this little carbiner and all, and it was crazy. My other friend was a little more hesitant, and he was kind of showing his hesitancy, and then the guy started messing with him. Started saying, oh, I don't think your hook is right. I don't think your, 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 your uh, harness is in the right spot. And, all, and he starts messing with the guy. And here comes my friend, and he's cheering, and he's so excited. And they undo it, and my friend's going, are you sure this? And the guy goes, well, you know, maybe it's not something you ought to do. Because, you know, last week, hey, last week, didn't we lose somebody last week? And he's messing with my friend. I mean, it's unbelievable. He hooks the carbine around, and he goes, oh, oh." And like, and all of a sudden my friend takes off and he goes, wait, wait. I... And they're both falling on the ground laughing and they're laughing and they think it's hilarious. And my friend, you can see him. I mean, he's clutching this parasail. He's, he's all balled up. He's got his knees up here and he is not enjoying it one bit. I mean, you could see it. He starts yelling, I'm done. I'm done. Please, I'm done. What a difference, huh? What a difference in trust makes. When we believe and trust what God can do, the experiences we have are vast. But when we ball ourselves up and fail to believe that God is able, things don't go so well. Habakkuk 2, remember the plan of God, the power of faith, and the path of the faithless as we wait for his answer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for how good you are You are a good God who provides your word for us. You provide the lives of Habakkuk to illustrate what it is that you want for us. May we wait actively for you, Lord, to respond to us and the questions that we have. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Have a wonderful week.